So she listened to the David Vickle episode where in the beginning it's all about healing and prayer and the Holy Spirit and radically following Jesus and being a director of evangelization. And then at the end, it's all about demons. And that's when her kids woke up and came downstairs. And she said that they were terrified after hearing that part. Success. But it's just awesome, the uh, the response that we've been getting. Because certain episodes strike different chords with different people. Mm-hmm. But the common refrain that we get is, thank you so much for being, basically for being honest about how crappy you are. That's how I interpret it. But for just being honest about who we are and what we're representing, we don't have it all together. So, you know, this one person wrote in just saying that perfectionism is a huge struggle for her. Uh, she always feels like she has to have her shit together when in reality she's a broken spinner. And she said, I listen to a lot of Catholic stuff, and while this stuff can be informative or inspirational, your podcast is the first I've heard that affirm that it's okay to be honest and open about our wounds, our sins, our brokenness, and our failings. Awesome stuff. That's exactly, exactly what we want to do. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who works in um, in a Catholic school. She texted me. I haven't talked to her in years. She sent me a message saying, basically, do not stop what you're doing because... I have to put up with fake shit all day of people pretending who they are or pretending to be someone that they're not. And this is just like really hitting it. So I wanted to take the time to say thank you um, and to let you kind of know what me and Luke are thinking about doing with the podcast as we go. What are your thoughts, Luke? You guys are awesome. I am truly moved by all. Of, I mean, even just our own family and our friends um, who have reached out, who take the time to you know like listen to us blab on like we're important for an hour to an hour and a half each week so andy thank you you're the best throw it out there who do you want us to interview i desperately want to get mark Wahlberg after the whole papal thing i want to get him out here uh i (laughs) that's like my big my big goal basically what i want to do is get people like a canon lawyer that's not someone you would expect we find the awesomest canon lawyer ever who is funny and young and knows how to talk about a lot of stuff to get on this show, but to open up the whole like Catholic world. So, you know, things like w- spiritual direction, like maybe we'll pull in a spiritual director that can juggle. I don't know. Yep. Um, we may, may, may get a certain, well, two different rappers on here at some point in time. Here's hoping. Who's the other rapper? Uh, Righteous B. Will possibly. Oh, Bob, yes. Bob Osnowski has agreed to the show. So, Usually, I know it's not good like marketing to say what you have, what you really haven't booked yet. So I probably shouldn't give too right. Which details. is why I was, I was trying to be vague. Uh, yeah, we have but, some, we have, we do have some great stuff that's that's in the works. So if you're a fan of uh, yeah, what we do and the type of things that we think are important, and we've got some great interviews coming yeah. up, and I'm I'm thrilled to like to thank you guys. And if there's if there's yeah. anyone that you would like us to interview, uh. Let us know if you have a friend, an aunt. Like I, re- like one of my favorite parts of the podcast that is when I hear an interview with a person I don't know a thing about, and it's just fascinating to hear about their life or their work and the things that that they do. So it's not like we want to get high profile people; we want interesting people. That's really all that matters. We have a question from a great listener, Alicia. That's, at least I'm going to assume that's what your name is. And if you have any ideas that or or people you think we should we should interview, hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash Caching Foxes Podcast, or or our new email oh, that's address. Right, we really went all out on this one, kids. We went all out. 
cfpodcast at layevangelist.com. We realized after we created it that it's that's a lot of letters there. <laughs> so if you have an idea for a guest, if you have an idea for a show topic, or you just have a question that you need, quite frankly, my wisdom to answer, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash catching foxes podcast, or shoot us an email at cfpodcast at layevangelist.com. Okay, Luke, take it away. Alicia, what did Alicia have to say? So she had a really great question that I thought I thought was awesome. Here's a topic that I am wondering if you guys could touch on. Sacrifice. Not in the Latin way, but in the old world way. Why was sacrifice important? What was it? Why the sacrifice of the Mass and why we have the liturgy of the Eucharist that we have? Why Christ offered himself as a sacrifice and how can we tap into that notion today as 21st century people? Great question. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of people can identify with this next part uh, that uh, sometimes I feel out of touch with the liturgy because the notion is foreign to me. Interesting. Like, so I, I think the heart of this is what the hell do we mean when we say the sacrifice of, of the mass? And this is not going to be catechetical, although, oh, I'm sorry, we'll probably have some parts there, but we really want to kind of like dive into like, no, 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 like, what does that mean to me as a person who likes to, likes to watch How I Met Your Mother? Like, what does that actually, like, how does that apply to me and my, and my own life here in 21st century America? Not just, you know, the theology behind it. I think for the first part, you have to sacrifice actually having a sense of humor in order to watch and like that show. That show's amazing. And if you dish, if you diss that show, end of podcast. I hate that show. That show hates you. I know it's true. We've we've never been able to see eye to eye, mostly because <laughs> it's a show and doesn't have eyes. But still, we can't see eye to eye. I love how she's like, no, no, no. Don't tell me the precious little things I give up during Lent, right? I love that idea because mm-hmm. it's like when we say sacrifice, we are such first world problem people. We're like, oh, am I going to give up my excess soda drinking or my excess candy eating? <laughs> what am I going to give I'm up? I'm on a sweet low because it's Lent. <laughs> yeah, I. <don't... laughs> I only drink stuff with aspartame because it's land. I'm getting skim milk in my latte because it's land. And I don't want to get whole milk because it's fat and I need to lose weight and it's land. Can we keep going on with this one? Oh, my God. I have so much meat. <laughs> I can just eat it. Oh, crap. I accidentally <laughs> ate it on Friday. I'm surrounded by meat in my mouth all the time. It's land. I don't want to eat candy, but it's land. But I feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm so fat. And I just can't eat it. It's land. Candy, Lent, fat, candy, self, no Jesus. Oh, I exhausted that. I'm sorry. I tried to top you, and I was. it was just, listen, we all know that Michael Gorham is the man who can't be topped. Wow. Man, that is the second best thing you've ever said to me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love you. Looking at that, I, but I just think it's funny because that's like our notion of sacrifice. You know, it's like uh, like people are like, oh, I hate the one percenters. And you can hate the one percenters all you want. I mean, it's immoral to hate people, but you're going to burn in hell for that. But uh, <laughs> when we talk about who's the one percenters in America, we get all uppity about like the eight billionaires. But when you look at it from a global perspective, if you make 30, what is it, like $36,000 or more, you're a one percenter. You have two cars, you're a one percenter. You have uh, a computer, you're a one percenter. <laughs> oh, is that a fancy brand new phone? You're a fancy one percenter. When you talk about that in terms of, like, the whole world, the fact that I just, I'm sorry, but I keep getting hung up on the fact that she's like, let's not talk about sacrifice at Lent. Because, like, it's it's not really a sacrifice for us when you compare it to, you know, the rest of the world. That's just what I want. In terms of the theology behind it, 
I understand the idea of why this is not odd. Why Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son? Like I, I, I actually, well, you know what? Pretend that I that I, I didn't say that. I think it's really hard for us, but as 21st century people, do we or even should we have an idea of an atonement? Ooh, okay. I mean, why don't you, why don't you unpack that a little bit for me? <laughs> okay. Do you th- I mean I, again? I don't want to like. I like it. Uh, yeah. No. Go. Like when you read the story of Abraham, what do you get out of that story? I just tend to view it as the idea that there needed to be some type of punishment for our sins. And I, I don't know. It's I honestly I view it as more of a religious ritual that was symbolic of a greater truth that there had to be some consequence to our sin. And there were things that we could do that would be symbolic of what could help us, but wouldn't actually be able to do it. And that God was ultimately going to provide that with his son. Yeah. Like, so it's more, I I think it's more the idea that I understand, but I don't see what I don't, I don't see the atonement that they were trying to make back then as having any personal relevance within my own life besides foreshadowing the coming of Christ. Yeah. So, okay. So number one, look, I think we could look at, see, this is my problem. I immediately go into catechist mode and I'm like, number one, <laughs> like, that's, that's a normal conversation. The, for me, starting with sacrifice, like the old world, sacrifice meant to kill something. Right. Whether you're talking Greek in the new Testament or Hebrew in the old Testament, Sacrifice meant it was the word to sacrifice. Me was based on in both those languages is based on the word to kill to slaughter, right? It's not mm-hmm. like a, a nice thing. It's not like sacrifice. Let me put it this way: the root word for sacrifice is not abstinence, right? You know, it's like oh, I'm staying abstaining from meat because mm-hmm. I don't want to get fat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat it because I'm fat. I thought that you were on a diet. Lay off me! I'm starving. That was for you, Emily and Christina. But when we look at that, right, so it means to kill. And when we offer sacrifices and all that stuff in the Lenten way, that means that we are, we are trying to mortify or kill the demands and desires of the flesh over us. But when you look at it in the old world, number one, do you know how they – I did the number one thing again. Do you know how they – it was horrendously bloody. Their temples, whether they were the Hebrew or the uh, Israelite temple in Jerusalem or anything, it reeked of blood and death. And, and cooked meat and stuff like that, it smelt like a slaughterhouse. That's what temples were. And the question is, why the hell was that central? And the answer is, from the very beginning of the religious impulse in man, the thing was, you're aware of, C.S. Lewis has a great line where he says, my first like religious impulse is essentially that I'm aware of a law within myself that I did not create myself, but that I'm held accountable to. And he said, and the second impulse is, oh, crap, I broke it. I threw in the phrase, oh, crap. But you're aware of the fact that, like, there's this natural law, and then I break the law. So how do we get out of it? Every religion's answer, and, and you can find this in every part of the culture, every reli- or the world, um, every culture in the world, every religion had a substitute. Like, okay, I did this horrible thing. I feel bad that I did this horrible thing. What do I do now? Oh, crap. And it's like, okay, well, there's an animal. I'm going to put my sin on that animal and then kill the animal. And then I'll be free. The animal will be dead. The gods will be fine. So, so it's more about justice. 
or trying to or trying cosmic uh, justice. Cosmic, cosmic justice. justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes Which sense. is a thing that we don't really even think about at all as 21st century people. We don't acknowledge that justice is a thing outside of a courtroom, right? Our limits of justice is just is for many people, even believers, right? Is is a human positive law. It's like you broke these laws, and it's ju- we're going to get our justice because you're corrupt, and and then yeah, we'll have our day in court. And, and that is justice. Like, don't don't get me wrong. But for the ancient world, justice was a cosmic thing of like putting the universe back into place. So if you're a murderer and you kill someone, it is uh, the the injustice that you commit isn't just a spiritual sin. It is something that affects the rest of the cosmos. And so bringing justice into alignment means not just convicting the criminal, but it means, you know, in most cultures, it meant killing the criminal and, you know, to to do to him what he did to the universe in order to kind of bring the cosmos back into alignment. So when you think about it that way, yeah, it it absolutely is a part of this, like, cosmic view view of the universe. So then tie that into mass. I don't think we can go that far yet. Okay. Nope. Never mind. Because I'm, I'm like, I'll be very honest. This isn't, this is a theological area that i have a basic understanding of but i I couldn't go into a lot of of depth so i can only like is that's what i'm like i like i mean i i i understand what you are talking about but at times it's still a little bit hard for me to make that jump yeah what what do you think is it just because it's so because it's so theological or because it's so like ancient ultimately i think it's because we and, and this is where I knew we were going to take it. I think it's because one, I didn't pay attention as much in college as I should have. <laughs> <And laughs> so that's one thing. And then two, we view Christ- Christianity as being very relational, which is a good thing. I talk about this all the time, how our relationship with God, with Christ, with the Holy spirit, very, very, um, very, it's very important, but at times I think it's hard for us, and this comes from I think a lot of our Protestant culture. And I'm not trying to knock that at all, but there's like you don't talk about the Paschal mystery that much at like you know a Christian conference. Uh, you don't talk about like salvation being a thing that you participate in. And I could be choosing my words wrong, but you're saying the Protestant doesn't do that. Yeah, or yeah, that that the. Yeah, that that's sorry. I'm saying that's what the Protestant does not do. It's more of that salvation is a thing that you have received, as opposed to a thing that you are, you know, like so. And I and I could be saying this wrong, so tell me to shut up if if I'm uh, committing heresy. Well, you're you're definitely near there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I mean, this is just discussion, not instruction. I don't know what I'm talking about. What do you mean? Yeah, well, no, I mean, like, <laughs> like that's the thing. Like, I don't. So, uh, I, I guess what? Okay, so sorry. So what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to say is that um, I, I get really loud sometimes. Sorry. Uh, how do I put this? Within our culture, Christianity is we're we are mostly on the receiving end as opposed to something that we actively participate. Like the, so the part of scripture where it's where we work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. That means two different things within uh, the Protestant church and uh, Catholicism for the most part. Yeah. Um, 
And I think within within America, because we're such a or we were, we are very quickly getting away from that. But we were so Protestant based in a lot of our cultural ideas and practices that the idea of of a sacrifice that I am participating in makes little to no sense. Yeah, because I am I re because it's all about I am going to receive what the a salvation God God offers to me on the cross. So we talk about the sacrifice of, of the mass that makes zero sense because why? Yeah. Why? Like, I mean, it, it, it just like, I mean, like, I mean, I acknowledge and I believe it and I understand to a limited a degree what that means, but did any of that make any sense at all? Yeah. So and I was trying to be concise that, that time. Yeah, nailed it. Uh, so uh, the way I think of it is this. Okay, so you go. You got to go back to understanding. Like I would tell people, we don't know what the priesthood is if we don't know what a sacrifice is. A priest is one who sacrifices, right? A preacher is one who preaches, but a priest is one who sacrifices. And yet in the New Testament, they chose a different word. They use the word elder, right? Because it's a family term. I like what you're talking about. Like we use the phrase relationship with God, relationship with Jesus Christ so much that it almost, um, it makes it this intimate thing and it almost loses the cosmic dimension of it. I think we always have to balance the personal with the corporate or, or the cosmic in this case. Mm-hmm. But what Jesus was up to, we can't understand what Jesus was up to, what Jesus is doing in the mass and what Jesus finished 2,000 years ago on the cross unless we understand the history of God's people and like the religious use of sacrifice. So like for instance, um, the in the very beginning everyone could offer well actually the bible focuses on men but that anyone could offer sacrifice you have the story of cain and abel for some reason cain looked at abel's sacrifice you know the bible isn't super explicit but it has god coming to cain and being like why are you crestfallen that i've looked with favor on your brother's thing it's like sin is couching at your door see that it doesn't become your master it's one of the best statements in the bible Ooh, i like that right and then cain flips out lures Abel away and then kills him, right? So you could say that, right? So there was uh, Cain offered cereal offerings, which in the Jewish religion is totally equal to to uh, animal sacrifice. Like you know, I don't know about totally equal, but it, there it's, it wasn't like a horrible thing. So we don't really know like a ton of like stuff with that. But we think like a lot of Bible scholars will say, oh well, you know what that really is? That's like Abel's giving the best of his flock and Cain is giving the leftovers of his crop or whatever it is. So looking at that um, specifically, what does Cain do, right? Cain, his sacrifice is not looked with praise by God the Father. So then Cain makes another sacrifice, which is he sacrifices Abel at the altar of Cain's own ego, right? So for Cain, he had become much like what his mother and father had done before him. He had become his own God, and he sacrificed his own brother, to a blood offering to himself, right? And this is like really dramatic because what we want to do is we want to look at the notion of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, all that stuff, and we want to dismiss it by saying, this is stupid. Obviously, a goat doesn't have my sin. Yeah. Why are we doing this scapegoat stuff? It's primitive. But, right. It, it's primitive. It belongs to, a, you know, it's a lost way of thinking. But we do this all the time. We sacrifice and do idol worship all the time we don't have the intelligence today 
to give it a name like they did back then. How many men and women worship the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, and they will do anything and everything in order to achieve or remain whatever beautiful, their version of beautiful. Mm -hmm. How much will they sacrifice of their very health in order to get at some weird thing? How many women starve themselves? You know, I told the story the other day that one of my friends is a teacher. Hey, Julie. She had uh, like first graders or second graders who the little girls were anorexic. Oh, they were they were freaking a. right, right. In, intent like this, like a point of 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 like hurting the child's health. I know a girl who was so anorexic and bulimic that she actually looked forward, looked forward to getting the effects of the of of hyper malnutrition. You know of like a fur appearing on your skin, your sunken eyes, the fact that people can see every bone in your body and all that stuff. She thought she actually ended up thinking that was desirable. And the thing is about idols, right? So we sacrifice, I talk to like men, right? And it's still men that do this the most, but women absolutely are guilty of this too. Careerism, you know, you might not like what they did in the ancient days, right? They had a little idol, a little, you know, a talisman or whatever of, uh, of some God of prosperity. Mm-hmm. And they would sacrifice things for the God of prosperity. How many men and women today sacrifice things to that same idol, but we call it careerism. We call it ambition, drive, startup culture, serial entrepreneur. We wrap yeah. all these ladles. But really, it's I do not derive my own self-worth from God who loves me. I derive it from a thing that I, I worship and that demands a sacrifice of me. Now, and, in the ancient... Yeah, go. No, no, no. And, and I just want to make it clear, like, those things, I mean, besides all the bulimics, I mean, which is just... Oh, gosh. I, um, I just feel so bad. Um, wanting to be... Like, caring about your career isn't bad. You know? But when that stuff becomes more important, when it becomes an idol, that's when it's a problem. You know? I think we became dangerously close and a, and a lot of people cross this line trying to make an idol out of Steve jobs thinking, Oh, to be a good boss, I need to be an asshole to all of my, all of my employees, you know? And I think I definitely did that. I mean, not, not that I was a jerk to people that I, when, when I, when I had, uh, when I was a principal, but I did think that I thought Steve jobs could do no wrong for a bit. You know, and I and I thought, oh my gosh, he just was the he was what it meant to be a great to be a great um, boss. And we need to remember that if it's not of God, it's not going to be perfect. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That the, might be a little bit of like a, of a tangent. But I just wanted to make that distinction. No, no, no. That's good because this is the thing. I, and I said this, uh, but I kind of just threw it out there. An idol is a good thing that you then turn and worship. It's a good thing to have a job. Oh, yeah. It's a good thing to provide yeah, for your right. family. It's a good thing to have to. You know, beauty beauty is a good thing. Like it's not a bad. Oh, I'm beautiful. Crap. I mean, I, I mean, I am eye candy. It's very difficult for me um, to go out on the street. Hey, like, my eyes. Down. My eyes are here. <laughs> but all of this stuff, right? And we, and you know, also with the bulimia and anorexia, we know that there's. It's not like women are like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to consciously worship the goddess of beauty. Now we know that mm-hmm. there's mental illness. There's shaming from our culture. That's what we're talking about. Like these are cultural embodiments of sin. I mean, like you think about it, case in point, I always tell this story when I'm trying to get across the, the real meaning, and I'm quoting good old Scott Hahn here, the uh, golden calf, like what were they doing? The scripture says they made revelry or dancing. Uh, they were having uh, sexual orgies. 
<laughs> at the foot of the golden calf. Why is that important? Gold power. Gold symbolizes wealth. The calf, the bull calf, symbolizes power or strength. And they were having an orgy as a part of their liturgical worship. Yo, if you like a spicy liturgy, you ought to go to the golden calf. Um, but <laughs> rock and roll Jesus, forget that. How about orgy bull calf? Um, <laughs> Modern uh, church, everyone. You know what would be so funny is if at the moment that they're all having their wild orgy in the front of the bull calf, someone says, you know, like... I mean, I enjoy this orgy and all, but I just really prefer the traditional form of orgy. And then someone's like, forget that. We got to be more charismatic in our orgy. And then they have like tradies verse modern. It's, it's not about the orgy. It's about the relationship. It's not about the relationship. The it's about orgy the just blocks it. I mean, there's some things about the orgy that I like, but like it's about the relationship, not the orgy people. Too much <laughs> and then all orgy. Of a sudden, and then people start coming up with a theology of, like, it's about the horizontal worship of people coming together. No, it's not. It's about the vertical penis. Okay, so we're just going to stop that. This is getting way out of here. Uh, this is the greatest moment of our podcast in the history of yeah. our podcast. I was trying to work in a penis joke this entire time, and I apologize to our listeners for doing that. But the whole, the funny thing is, this is what we do. These are the games that we play of, I mean, they worshipped money sex and power thank god in america we don't worship those things because we're so much more evolved no one here worships money no one here oh that's a lie um so when we think about all this stuff like the ancients weren't ridiculous uh they might have done plenty of ridiculous things but they did what we do today they just had a name for it and slapped a religion on it. They were just we removed the religion <laughs> yeah. Huh? yeah yeah they were honest we've removed the religion around it but we still worship them We've removed the external trappings, but we still have it. I mean, how many dads or how many um, kids feel like they, you know, they weren't murdered in, in the, you know, to worship the god Moloch in this horrific ancient rite that they used to do. But how many kids and how many marriages have been sacrificed because of someone's career? Mm -hmm. You know, like, that's what I'm trying to get at. So when we look at sacrifice, sacrifice means to kill something, right? You have a victim and you kill it. Now, why did that get involved in religion? Well, number one, we already talked about how that... Son of a gun, I did the number one thing again. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Doesn't he suck everyone? <laughs> Isn't he awful? He's telling himself <laughs> that right now, over and over again in his own head. Encouraging oh. everyone. No, I'm just kidding. The, so we, we know that we worship these idols. And so that's why whenever we create a religion, we, we end up framing it around this. So of course, there's going to be sacrifice. But when it comes to the religion, like the true religion, revealed religion throughout the Old Testament, why did they do it, right? They did it because of this notion of substitution. And that's also becomes part of all, pretty much all world religions, that you, you are guilty. You admit your guilt. But what do you do with that guilt? How do you, how do you stand before God as an adulterer? And guilt's a really interesting thing because I think we only – you can have guilt without consciously knowing you've done a wrong thing or, or, or that you have consciously willed to do a wrong thing. Yeah. I like to think of guilt as guilt is to the, the soul or the conscience or whatever – what pain is to the body. Yep. You told me that before I gave a talk on a confession and I stole it from you. Yeah. Good, good. That's one of three original things I've ever said. <laughs> Father Michael Schmidt stole the other one or stole one of the other ones, but he said it so much better than me. <laughs> so handsome. Right. But guilt is to the, is to the soul. What pain is to the body. And what I mean by that is pain in your body is 
your nerves telling your brain there's something wrong here. Pain is not the problem. It's the thing that pain is alerting you to, right? So, like, if you break your foot, your brain learns about that through the nervous after saying, hey, you know, all these signals being inputted, and we understand this as pain. This is a negative thing. It's a painful thing. But the problem is, you know, we have disorders when it comes to pain, right? We have people who uh, are sexually aroused by pain, all 50 shades of it. And so the only way that they can literally have sexual arousal is if they hurt themselves or are being hurt, or they hurt others, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's a disorder. I don't care how much, how many copies of a book you sell. That is disordered. That you either hurt your loved one, you have to have your loved one hurt you in order to derive arousal. That's effed up. But the there are also pain things where you can't feel pain, where the nerve ending is dead, and something is horribly wrong, but the pain receptors can't pick it up. Your nerve endings can't pick it up. The same is true in the world of guilt. There are some people who have guilt complexes who are uh, are guilt obsessive, who have anxiety issues, but the anxiety isn't wrapped around their job, their family, um, some evil befalling them. Their anxiety is attached to guilt or, you know, to this notion of I did something so evil and I'll never, I'm never worthy enough of forgiveness and all that stuff. And also the other extreme happens, right? So that's an extreme. The other extreme is I feel no guilt. I have no problem. I'm a sociopath. I can hurt people and feel no guilt. I can destroy my life and feel no pain. In fact, I'm just going to get defensive, and then even my defenses will fall away because I, I don't care. Like, I don't need to prove anything to you. Whatever. I, I'm doing this bad thing. I don't think it's bad. Fine. I'm good. And so we need to – I always think that's important. Like, when we talk about this notion of guilt, there is good guilt that says to your soul, hey, this is wrong, either an action you're about to do or something you've already done. This is wrong. So what do we do? What do we do with guilt? Do we keep it inside of ourselves? Well, we know, everyone knows. You don't need a freaking PhD in psychology to know that guilt contained within oneself eats away at your life. Yep. Eats away at your bones. I mean, scripture even talks about, you know, like your bones wasting away within you. You know, and and it's interesting because I I remember I had a great conversation with a priest. I, I think he... Or perhaps he was a transitional deacon. It doesn't matter. But no, you know what? It was a priest. Because I think he said, like, if I were a person in in a confession who comes to me and says, I killed a man, I can't tell him that he that for his penance he has to turn himself in. But I will recommend it because not not only because it's the just and the and it is the quote unquote right it's the right thing to do but the guilt will eat him alive unless he does that yeah it's it, it even if he goes to a confession for it and god and god god forgives him for what he for what he did if uh the guilt about the lack of justice because and of the horrible thing, you know, will destroy him inside. And that's why I will I will recommend that he go. But I can't tell him to go as part of the penance. You're not able to do that. I think in dealing with guilt, the way to get it out, we created a thing. And that thing is sacrifice. And I do not think you can have religion without the notion of sacrifice at all. You always sacrifice something because every human being worships something, whether it's God or something else, something lesser. Mm-hmm. You're going to – everyone worships something. Everyone has a first principle that they're willing to even sa- – that's how you know you worship it. You're willing to sacrifice other things, other relationships in order to keep this one thing 
going, your ultimate priority. And yeah, and, and that's well, you know what you you just said it. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. when we think about this, how do we get rid of the guilt? That's the thing is, if I'm taking my religion seriously in terms of the moral law, how I be- behave and and how not to misbehave and I misbehave, then what do I do with the miss? Especially the misbehavior part, not your friend, the missus. Uh, the, the cosmic element of it that we don't even think about as individuals today, we're so individualistic, to them it was, how do I right this wrong? Right? How do I put it back to the way it was? Or, or you know, what, how do I bring healing to the, to the brokenness? And for them, the way that they dealt with guilt and honestly, and sin, in the presence of God, it was it, see, the cool thing is in the ancient world that you basically had these two notions. You had substitution and appeasement, right? So appeasement meant the gods were so pissed off, they were bloodthirsty. And so you sacrifice animals in order to give the blood to the gods, and that would appease them so that the gods would either A, not take it out on you, or B, um, take it out on the animal, right? Or like they'd be satisfied. Like, I don't need it. Or you're trying to win them over. You know what I mean? And so that, that appeasement thing is central to most world religions. But in the, the religion of the Israelites and the Hebrews, that wasn't the point. The point was substitution. And I think that is a central key. Because the thing is this, like, justice, both individual and cosmic, needs to be fixed. But it's not because God is bloodthirsty. It's because he's just. Right. So the Romans sacrificing a whole bunch of, you know, what animals in order, you know, their goal was to get the deity, whatever deity it was, to pay attention to them. Right. But what if God is already paying attention to you? In fact, he knows you in and out. In fact, he knows what you did last summer, Jennifer Love Hewitt. And he's going to Michelle Geller. Right. And you know that his justice is real. And you know you violated his justice on both a personal and cosmic level. How do you, who love God, want to fix it? How do you do that? Well, you got it. You can't have the guilt inside of you. You got to get rid of it. So in that, the biblical kind of system that grew up well before God, I mean, there, God never told Cain and Abel to sacrifice. There, that's not in the Bible. They just did it. And we don't know why they did it. We don't know if it was a command of God, if you don't know this was a human response, but they were in relationship with God and they had to figure out a way to get good. So they made a substitute. It's this animal. I'm going to put it on this animal and I'm going to sacrifice the animal and I'm going to walk away and me and you we're cool. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're good. God. We're good. And in fact, actually one of the, the ancient Jews, the uh, rituals that they had was the scapegoat where they put the sin of all the people on a goat, and then they cast the goat out of the city into the wilderness. We're supposed to meet Azrael the demon, or something. I don't know, something crazy. But uh, you have these, like, these things that go on. This is the thing I want to say. So Abraham and Isaac is super interesting, because it's this notion of substitution, right? God asked Abraham, or God gave to Abraham, well before the sacrifice part, God gave to Abraham the one thing Abraham did not have, which was a son. Now, imagine the greatest tendency in our relationship with God is to do what? What do you think that is? The greatest tendency in our relationship with God is to do what? To ask for the things that we want. I don't know where you're going with this. No, you hit it. You hit it. (laughs) Okay. Yes, I did it, everyone. High five. We did it. (laughs) To ask for the things that we want, which means what do we turn God into? Uh, Like a magician who just like... You know, he's our fairy godmother. 
Absolutely. He's not our father. He's not our brother. He's not our divine lover. He is none of those things. He is the great cosmic genie that I ask for stuff and he gives. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's the dangerous thing because the, the notion is the thing that we ultimately ask for God is what? We want happiness. And for Abraham, happiness was a child. It wasn't all more land. He's like, I got a lot of land. I left my home. I left my father. I left everything I knew. And I went to a land that you showed me. And now here I am. And I'm, I'm old. I'm ancient. I'm 100 years old. My wife is well beyond childbearing years. All I want is a son. You've given me nothing. Oh, look, here's uh, Ishmael. I'm going to have sex with my slave. And I'm going to produce a son. Oh, look, this is what's going to happen. And then God gives him Isaac, his son, laughter. Now, imagine if Abraham, the father of faith, used God to get his idol, Isaac. Mm. Right? Imagine if Isaac, the idea, I mean, think about those. This is the problem today. We don't realize the ancient family system that the honor and shame culture that existed back then. Family, regardless of what you wanted, family came first, always. You wanted to be an artist. Your dad wanted you to be a warrior. You became a warrior, and you didn't. You thought being an artist was evil, because that that's not what your family wanted. It's all about advancing the family. Mm-hmm. We call it the trustee family, which means you individuals that happen to be alive right now, you're entrusted with the bloodline, the land, and the family name. Keep it, increase it. That was always the goal, and so that's why you have people like George Washington. Why didn't George Washington get rid of his slaves until after he died? Because he had no heirs. His trusty family ended with him, so then he felt like he could finally liberate them, right? He didn't have any children that took on the, the family estate afterwards. Mm-hmm. This is, that's how much they hated slavery, and yet they still kept slaves. Why? Because that was part of their land, their name, their bloodline, their family. So you look at Abraham, and all he wants is a son to carry on his name, and then you got God who gives him a son. So what's the danger of Abraham's relationship to God? Not of faith but one where God becomes my, my jukebox, my, uh, my uh, what do you call it? The, my Fonz. <laughs> the letter, lever where you pull down the, the oh, gambling uh, thing. My grandma loves them. Uh, <laughs> slot uh, machine. The, sl- slot machine. There you go. And, and God says, no, I want you to sacrifice your son. Like, I mean, just think about that, the tremendous amount. Not, not see, we, I think we think like God's playing, like testing his faith. I think God in that moment is breaking Abraham's idol. Oh, that's awesome. Because Abraham trusts God so much. The book of Hebrews says it trusts God so much that he says he believed like, hey, maybe you'll get resurrected. I don't, I don't, I don't own life and death. God does. God told me that I have to offer you, right? But you're my everything. You're my all. Take your son, your only son that you love, and go to the mountain that I will show you and offer him up. So the notion of like sacrifice, he, he he didn't mean give him up for Lent. He meant to kill him. So what did he do? They go off while they saw the mountain, which is Mount Moriah, by the way, puts the wood of the sacrifice on his only son's back. His son carries the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain, and then he binds him to the wood, takes out the knife, and God says, stop. To me, that the ancient Jews used to say, this is definitive, definitive proof that Yahweh wants nothing to do with human sacrifice ever, ever, ever. And in the history of the Jewish faith, never once did they do human sacrifice in the temple to Yahweh. That was never a thing that happened. Whenever they killed human beings in sacrifice, it was always idol worship, right? And so here you have Abraham, and he was so faithful to the point where he would even give up the one thing his heart wanted on this earth, more, what could potentially be more than God, which was 
an heir, a son, someone to carry on the entire family line, to inherit the entire name, because it was all going to die with Abram, Abraham. And so what happened? He said, you know what, God? You promised me an heir. Now you're telling me to kill the only heir that I got. Maybe you'll resurrect him, but I'm with you. Like, think about that idol destruction. And now you take it to the mass. Or you don't even have to take it to the mass. Take it to Moses. Take it to mass? No, I'm not taking it to the mass. Take it to Moses. Right? Do you have anything you want to say about that? Because oh. I just talked a lot. Uh, here's the thing. Luke knows, Luke knows this much about this stuff. You know this much about this stuff. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to throw in a funny <laughs> The fonts. I got nothing after that. No, um, it, it really blew my mind when you, when you said that, Abraham, because we talk about that story so much in just as a Catholic, you're bound to talk about that at least three times a year. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. And we always talk about how hard it must have been for Abraham to give up his son and the sacrifice, but we never talk about it being him having to destroy his idol. Yeah. And that's really, you know, and so I think to tie that into like, it really causes me to stop and think like, what are the idols in my life and what do I try to sacrifice to keep it, to like make amends for like, oh, it's fine. I, I'm sorry that, that, that I did this. I'll take care of it. Like, I'm sorry that, um, you know, Aaron, I'm, I'm sorry that I watched sports when I should have been hanging out with you. I'll do an extra hour of like hangout time this week, which sounds horrible. I mean, this is this is just an example that I'm pulling out of my ass. Um, right, right. I, I and just, it's a beautiful, beautiful ass. Mm-hmm. Terrible examples, but a beautiful ass. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm gonna stop there. Um, and so, and I'm not saying that those things aren't just like good, but I think like 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 I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to think like what are the idols. What is God causing? What is God calling me to sacrifice to get rid of? Like, I don't know. It, the idea that of trying the sacrifice to get rid of idols is blowing my mind right now. Because then the, the of sacrifice of, of the mass, tell me if this is heresy, kind of makes sense now because it's saying I'm going to turn away from all of this stuff, and in order to make my life whole, to get in order to destroy the effects of my awful sin, I'm going to I'm going to participate in God's life by by going to mass and by by receiving the blessed by receiving. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like I'm trying to think and talk, which I can't do at the same time. Well, I think okay, so. I th- I think you're I think you're one step too far. Okay, okay. That the step before that is, I go to mass. Not okay. So you like I go to kill my idol. So therefore I'm going to mass and I'm going to do the same. Even before you say I'm going to mass, we have to talk about the thing that makes the mass capable of killing your idols, which is what Jesus did on the cross two thousand years ago. This is the part, mm-hmm. the pivot that we need to make as Catholics. When we go to mass, we're not just reenacting the Last Supper. Right. Like a lot of people say that, you know, like I, I got in a conversation, a wonderful conversation with the most frustrating man on the face of the earth um, at, a, at my favorite pizza place. And he said, well, if Jesus said do this in remembrance of me, how come we don't have mass on Thursday? And I said, because the Eucharist is not just a reenactment of the Last Supper. What he did at the Last Supper carries on to Good Friday, Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. In fact, it's the whole Paschal mystery. It's the whole life, death, resurrection, and, and re, um, resurrection and ascension. It's the whole deal. 
It's the resurrected Christ right now in heaven. It is our participation or the representation of all of that right now. And so the reason why we celebrate it on Sunday is because that's when he rose from the dead. We don't celebrate it anymore. Or we, don't, we don't ever celebrate it on a Thursday, but we don't celebrate the, um, the Sabbath on a Saturday because he rose from the dead. That changed everything. We're now a new creation because of what happened on Sunday. So you take that back even further. You look at uh, God. So what I would say is this, right? So conversion means you are in the process of making God your all. You're making God your number one, right? It, it is not enough. And this is the thing that a lot of people feel like, yeah, I got religion in my life. I, I got God in my life. I pray. And keeping God at a respectful arm's length is literally the most disrespectful thing you can do to God. That is cr- tr- treating your heavenly father like a grandfather. You know, I got God in my life, but not so much that I'm a religious fanatic or a freak. I got enough God but to make me feel good, to make me be happy. Right. And that's what it comes down to. But I'm not going to be one of those crazy people. I'm not really into religion. And so the problem is this problem is this. So you got sacrifice and substitution. What did God do with Abraham and Isaac? Abraham killing Isaac wouldn't have solved the central problem, which is our ability to make idols in the first place of anything that's not God. Our ability to find happiness and say happiness ends with having a son or with being successful or having money or whatever it is. What we need to do is we need to figure out, we need to get to the thing that causes us to make idols, which is our sinfulness, right? And so what God did ultimately was that he came into the world, not, I mean, there's a great line in the book of Hebrews where he says, um, burnt offerings, uh, in burnt offerings, all this stuff, you did not delight, but a body you have prepared for me. So when you think about it from that perspective, he's like, I'm, I'm here. Everything that has come before me, all the sacrifice, all the religious stuff, the point of why I'm here is because, A, I am the God that was offended by every little sin you've ever committed. So I come in, in that perspective in terms of cosmic justice. But then in form of cosmic mercy, Jesus then says, but in order to grant justice, I will substitute myself for you, right? So the one who's offended and the one, who, uh, the, the one who is offended becomes one with the offenders. And that's why his death actually does what the blood of bulls, cattle, sheep, and goats couldn't do. It's because they were our substitute in the sense of, you know, like, come on, God, don't look at me. Don't take my guilt and blame me. Just put it on the cattle, sheep, and goats. But for Jesus, Jesus is like, no, I'm God. I'm the one offended. And I say to you, I will pay the price that your offense causes. And I'm going to take it all onto me burnt offerings and sacrifices you did not delight in, a body you prepared for me. And when you think about it that way, you really look at this notion of like substitution. Like Jesus is saying, I'm going to go in your place. I'm going to take what you deserve. But in taking what you deserve, I'm going to give you what I deserve. And what does the son of God deserve? Like any firstborn son, he deserves eternal life because that's the life of the father. So then he exchanges that with us. So he takes sin, death, suffering, into himself, which is our inheritance, and he transfers it with his inheritance. And that's why the cross matters so much, is because Jesus did the thing as both priest, the one who offers, and victim, the one who is offered. And that's why you can't understand. This is my thing with with our, our Protestant brothers and sisters who say the Eucharist is just a symbol. It's not a symbol. The cross doesn't even make sense without the Eucharist surrounding it 
right? So the night before he dies, he does the Last Supper. And then when he's on the cross, he tastes the wine and says it is finished, right? But we know the work of redemption isn't totally finished until the resurrection. And so the whole notion of the sacrament of the Eucharist is the way we participate in what he did is through sharing in the sacrifice. But I can't go up and be crucified next to him. I can in a spiritual way, but I can't in a physical way. So how do I take what he did and apply it to my life? Number one is faith. Number two is the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass. So Jesus takes his sin onto himself. He becomes the lamb, right? They're killing all these lambs at Passover. Mm-hmm. He becomes the, univer- the lamb of the whole world. And then by doing that, how do we, just like in the ancient Passover, how were they saved? They were saved by killing an unblemished male lamb in the prime of life, slitting its throat, bleeding it out into a bucket, taking the blood and putting it on their doorpost and lintel. But if that's all they did, they would be, their firstborn son would be dead in the morning. They had to eat the flesh of the lamb. They had to eat the sacrifice. And then Jesus, in the middle of the Passover time, in John chapter 6, says, I'm the lamb. (laughs) You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. No one has life unless you do this. And so that's the whole notion of, like, it is so difficult for us to enter into the mass because we don't consciously think of the things we sacrifice, the people we sacrifice, the idols we worship. So if God is going to break us of our idol making, it can't just be the idols. It has to be the thing inside of us that causes the idol worship, which is sin. And that's what living as a Christian is all about, is the constant. It's not like I was converted once and then I'm done. It's I'm working out my salvation in fear and trembling because I still have this damn tendency to make more idols. And the coolest thing is when I learned in my Western spirituality class was that St. John of the Cross talks about the dark night of the senses, which is like purifying you of your attachments and worldly things. But then the dark night of the soul, which is a far deeper and far longer period of purification. And St. John describes it that when you're going through these dark nights, the only way you experience it is by complete trust in God. He says, you can't do any works. It's just pure faith. And he says, when you're going through the dark night of the soul, what God is purifying, and this is the way my professor kind of summed it up. He said that what God is purifying of you is your last desire, which is the ultimate desire, which is the desire for happiness. And God comes to you and says, what if, what if I give you everything you want, including happiness, but I don't give you me? Is that hell for you, or is that what you would call heaven? He says, what if I don't give you anything you want, but I always give you me? Is that enough? Am I enough? And that dark night of the soul is that final purification of where you say, you know what? My happiness, I'm willing to sacrifice even being happy for the sake of being with God. The coolest thing is being in union with God gives us happiness. But that's what it means, like, to be able to look at Isaac, the Isaacs of our life, and say, holy crap, I could, I could give, I, I, I desire to give you up. Because look at what you did for me. So, yeah, you know, my will is, is just to love you and you alone. Damn. You, you want to take a nap? <laughs> no, that was awesome. No, there's just well, a... I mean, so think about this real quick. So the Paschal lamb had to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Then you had to eat it as a family with unleavened bread, which is awesome, and then bitter herbs and spices to remind the Jews of the, the Israelites of the bitterness of slavery. But then the thing was the meal then became a commemoration, right? They did that in remembrance of all that God had done. So the way that that saving event was kept alive for all generations to come was that they entered into the ritual, and all the good little Jewish boys and girls 
up until the time of Christ, and about 30 years after, or 40 years after, they took a lamb up to the temple, and they sacrificed it, and then their family roasted the lamb, because you can only sacrifice uh, juridically, according to Mosaic law, you can only, or Deuteronomistic law, you can only sacrifice at the temple, no other sacrifice. It used to be anyone anywhere could sacrifice, then sins, God like, why the law? It was added because of sin. So you have like, don't eat the fruit of the tree. Oh, you ate the fruit of the tree. Son of a bitch. Okay, so now you got these 50 laws. And then they keep breaking them. It's like, well, son of a gun. You know, so God keeps adding all these laws to curb their sinfulness, right? So it was every father and firstborn son was like a priest. And, and they could offer sacrifice at every mountaintop, every high place, whatever. And that's the age of the patriarchs. But then Moses comes along and they do the whole golden calf thing. Then who can sacrifice? Well, only the Levites. So only the Levitical priesthood then could be sacrificed. Well, they could sacrifice a bunch of places. No. Well, now we're just going to do it at the tabernacle, which became the temple. And then that's the whole thing with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, as you go throughout the Old Testament where they rebelled against each other, where uh, the northern kings were like, we don't want everyone going down to the south to Judah in order to go to the temple. We'll make our own temples up here. And we'll say it's it's Yahweh, but we're going to offer sacrifice here. And from beginning to end, that was their doom is they went outside the law, they violated the law in order to have this political and family, you know, kind of thing going on. They weren't they weren't authentic. They weren't being obedient. And so what ended up happening? Well, they made idols, right? They, physically they made idols. The whole thing, the whole nation was destroyed. Um and, and never because it, it from the very first moment it entered into a covenant with sin and death because they did idols, right? So what does God ask of us? When you go to Mass and you receive Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, you got to do some things. you got to come with your sacrifices. The first sacrifice is repentance. Like, you have got to give up your ego and get low. Be humble. The problem with, you know, Archbishop Fulton used to say this awesome thing. He's, like, preaching to a bunch of teenagers in California. And he's like, and so I said, they said to me, but Mass is boring. And I said, we don't get anything out of Mass. And I said to them, you don't get anything out of Mass because you don't bring anything to Mass. Bring to the altar. Give up some of your dope. Give up some of your drink. And he, like, led this fiery thing. And I was like, wow, man, I've been going to Mass for years, and I never gave up anything in order to go to Mass. Yeah, but I think the thing. <sighs> what? Well, I like that. Oh, oh I, uh, that's awesome. But I think right now the church does a piss poor job of explaining what that actually means. Because yeah. I think if we go and we say we like, we always say, well, what are you putting in the mass? And 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 as a kid, and and like even now, I, I want to scream. I don't know because you're not telling me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, does that mean that that I'm supposed to be like, you know, and with your spirit as opposed to and with your spirit? Like, what, like, does it mean more umph? Does it mean I'm paying attention more because that's really hard? Does it mean that I go at a certain time of day? I think when you put it like that, you're saying bring your bring your false idols, bring your hurt, your anger, and go. I'm putting this into your hands. I'm putting this all. I'm putting this all aside to put the focus on you. And we instead we come up with stupid catchphrases to try to make everything better. But all of our slogans designed to take away the 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 pain don't mean anything. See what I did there? <laughs> Sorry, I knew right when you said slogans, I was like, Here "Buckle he up, goes. he's quoting a lyric, quoting Five Iron Friends." But I know, but like, really, like we want to, we want, like, so you said a lot there, and and it was I awesome, did. and and I don't want to cut you off from where from where you were going, but I do want to interject, yeah, especially yeah. about that point, because I think that Fulton Sheen brings up a really great point, like. 
But if we don't understand what we're doing, like we say that we catechize when we just uh, give people answers to put down on a quiz. Yeah. Or when we come up, when we come up with stupid slogans or things to help us remember like how to do the things we should be doing. But if we don't come back to that, to that question of why am I doing this? You know, like there's a lot that you talked about and there's, and I think there's a lot that we could uh, go into, especially about uh, the Eucharist. That was a really interesting point you said about before and that, but anyways, what I want to focus on right now is the idea of the mass as a sacrifice and what we bring and what we try, what we are sacrificing for and why we are doing that. And what I'm really taking away from all of this right now is that it's not just about our time, like saying I'm taking time out of my day. This is my sacrifice to like just to show up, you know, but really going, I'm here not just because Christ loves me and I need to um, be in a communion with God or have that, you know, hold God close to me or, and, or I need to let God hold me close to him. I'm here to scrape away the baggage, sometimes piece by piece, sometimes one big thing at a, at, at a time. And there's a big difference between doing that and being told, just put more into it. Like, what the hell does that mean? I get, sorry, I get so mad about that because that's an easy answer and it's crap. This is like the carefulness that we have to do, that we have to speak when we do theology stuff. Sorry, is yeah. that we, no, 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 no. And because this is, this is the, this is the moment of, of, of pain. This is the pain point. Okay, so I just gave a bunch of theology that, that might, might have made mass make more sense. And then I respond, okay, so I'm coming here with my idols and I'm getting rid, I'm giving, getting rid of my baggage. I'm ripping this off. I'm, you know, shedding this chunk or these smaller pieces. The issue that I have is the word I'm, right? So, okay, yes, oh, we yeah. have to work. Yeah. We have to work. But even before we work, even before we respond, the faith that we have is that Jesus is already working. And that's why we go to the Eucharist, and it is not a sin offering. The cross was the sin offering. The Eucharist is the thank offering for the sin offering, right? How do we participate in his once-for-all-time sin offering? He then gave us the ability to participate in that through the Eucharist. So we go, I mean, I didn't earn Jesus' death on the cross. I didn't, I didn't, the only thing that earned Jesus' death was my sin. Like, that's my contribution, and it's pretty sucky. So when we go and talk about the cross, what did we earn with the cross? We didn't earn anything. It was a free gift. But what that means for us is simply this, the surrender, the hardest part I have to do is repentance and surrender. Yeah. Because it, it, it means really repenting and really surrendering. And I have Catholics who say, and this is now like I think what I'm finally waking up to is that notion of repentance. Because I have preached discipleship in Jesus and love of the poor and a radical charity and all of these things. And then I've preached the cross. And I realized after reading Forming Intentional Disciples that I didn't ever once preach repentance. At, like I talked about going to confession, being sorry for your sins. And I maybe said the word repentance. But like that as the central, Christ's work on the cross is central. And my response is not, yes, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. My first response is, you did this for me. I repent. I repent, I repent, I repent. And that's the thing that brings the conversion, right? 
That is how you know you're having a real conversion is because you're repenting. So when you go to Mass, don't think of it as, I, I, I mean, you do do the work. Just like Jesus Christ is fully human, fully divine, so too is our salvation. Fully our yes, but also really fully God's yes to us, right? Mm-hmm. So when we go to Mass, what are we doing? Well, we're doing two things. Number one, the word, and number two, the sacrament. You know, the church says full, conscious, and active participation and all that stuff. What does that mean? It means, number one, St. Paul says, you know, basically sacrifice every single day for the renewal of your mind. There's a great story of St. Jerome, whose feast day is today, where Jerome was like a playboy, a pretty, he lived a pretty wealthy and privileged life where he indulged his lusts. He had this great line one time where he said, for 17 years, I've been in the desert with the rock and the scorpion as my only neighbor. And yet in my mind, I'm still with the dancing girls. I remember that quote came to me at the worst time of my life when I was trying to get rid of pornography. And I'm like, this guy's living in the desert. <laughs> he still can't get out of his version of pornography. I'm screwed, right? But this thing where he translated the entire Bible into Latin. So he had all these ancient texts. He lived in Bethlehem, got all this stuff, access to the text that we don't even have anymore. And at the end of his life, uh, he had this dialogue with Jesus. And Jesus said, "You basically, Jerome, you haven't given everything to me. And he says, what? I've given you my writings, my work, everything that I am, all that I have, I've given it to you. And he said, what, what do I lack? What have I been holding back? He said, Jerome, you haven't given me all your sin. And that notion that Jesus wants our good works, that's great, but he wants our sin to be out of us, right? He wants us to stop grabbing onto it and holding onto it and defining ourselves by it. That's like the opposite way. So you have like the idol worship, which I have my identity by worshiping these idols. But the other opposite thing is I have my identity in a negative way by holding on to my sin, Right? And think about it when we say phrases like, I haven't forgiven myself. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? I'm sure, you, have you said that? I've said that before. Oh, yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, I'm just really, what you know, I know God's forgiven me, but I haven't forgiven myself. That is a bizarre, I mean, when you think about it, like, the God of all the universe, the one you sin against has forgiven you. But that means that you are still desperately hanging on to an idol that you're trying to appease. Like, I, I haven't forgiven myself. What do you mean you haven't forgiven yourself? Forgive your, move, you, you're the one that did it. You don't get to forgive. Like, you don't have to forgive yourself. You just have to own that the Father has forgiven you. That's what that really means. And it's us, like, holding on to our sin as our definition, right, as our identity. And we got to get rid of that in order to go anywhere with our Lord. So when we go to Mass, God gave us the very worship that we return back to him. So what do we bring? We bring our sin. And we offer that up. We offer, we offer that up. In, and because you're a priest. I don't know if you know that. Every mm-hmm. one of us in the church, we're all priests. Priest, prophet, and king. So what are we offering? Well, we're offering our spiritual sacrifices. That, that's the thing that we don't, I mean, we don't even talk about that. I have never been told before you come to Mass, you should offer spiritual sacrifice. Like when we do the offertory, that's when we as the faithful sitting in the pews should be really pouring on like, God, this is what I want. I want to be free of this idol. I'm giving this to you. I, I went to confession mm-hmm. for it, but I don't, it's not just my attachment or it's not just the sin that I confess. It's my love for that sin that I'm here giving to you. Right. You know, that. well, yeah. I, I just, I mean, I just keep going back to this idea that I think we don't have a good understanding of the why. You know, which is all the stuff that we have. Sorry, I'm way back. Um, and it ultimately goes back to, like, why God, why Christ, why a cross, why communion, why a mass. But, but with regards to the idea of a sacrifice, I really, I, I think this is a thing that we just don't ever talk about. Yeah. Because we just, like before, we just chalk it up to that's old stuff. 
you know, and like when I and as we've been having this uh, a conversation, the more that I that I think about the stuff that you've said, it really makes sense why now th- that can be really hard to grasp. Yeah, because we just we don't talk about it. Yeah, and then I I, I, I wrote this down at the beginning of the show. I was doing a conference once um, with uh, with a guy in his band, and one of the people in the band the night before we had started the conference said that he's a part of this new monastic movement. And I was like, "Ooh, that's awesome!" I've read Shane Claiborne. I think that stuff's cool. Like, it, it actually, when I broke up with my wife before we were married, Luke and Shane Claiborne's book "Irresistible Revolution" got me through that dark period of my life. Oh, yeah, you were there, buddy. The idea is that this guy said, he goes, now, I'm, I'm not Catholic, and, you know, and I respect the fact that you, know, you guys don't let non-Catholics receive communion. Or he goes, receive Eucharist. It's always funny when a Protestant says Eucharist because they always drop the article. They don't say the Eucharist. They just say Eucharist. We, we are, in, that's how I always know, like, there's like a, whenever I'm at an event and things are starting to get weird, it's when someone leads a prayer service about being Eucharist. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Um, <laughs> just say the Eucharist. Can we not do that? Oh, we are Eucharisting the Eucharist. Okay, whatever. We're doing this now. So uh, with the – you can tell I've been working for the church for a long time. <laughs> but the, the whole thing that he said was – and I thought this was so interesting. He said – that he talked about the table fellowship. And then he stopped and he goes, now, I know you call it an altar for the Eucharist, and we call it communion, and it's the table. And I go, no, we call it, we call it both, communion, Eucharist and communion. And he goes, okay. And he goes, but we call it a table, and you guys call it an altar. And in my head – I, I mean, obviously, I know they don't believe in – transubstantiation you know lutherans come the closest with consubstantiation but the that very notion the thing that's different is that this is a meal and that's it to them whereas for us this is literally the sacrifice that jesus made for us on the cross that's why this is an altar not just a table and we are we are coming to his sacrifice two thousand years ago and that's why we don't let people who don't believe what the church teaches receive the food from the altar is because they don't even acknowledge that this is the sacrifice of Christ represented in an unbloody manner, right? It's not blood and bits of you know, flesh flying around. That it is, it is essentially the sacramental way of going to that moment. And for him, it's not that at all. It's just a meal symbolizing our unity. Like, we're one body in Christ. That's why we eat the quote-unquote body of Christ. And it blew me away. At that time, I ne- never even appreciated. Like, the only time I would ever think about table and altar is, you know, liberals call it a table, but conservatives, we call it an altar. And liberals call it a meal, but it's also a sacrifice. But the thing is, it's both. It was always meant to be both. That's why we have to look at Moses and understand the Old Testament. The Paschal Lamb that was sacrificed was a sacrifice. It was an offering. It was a substitution. But at the same time, the do this in remembrance of me part, the commemoration, that was a meal. And it was both. It's not either or. It's both. And it's both that fully lives out the meaning of both. Right? So back in the Old Testament days, when you would sacrifice, you know, you go and do a sin offering, you then ate. The, the, the meat, like you didn't just sacrifice it and then they just threw the animal in the trash. You cut the meat and you ate it with the priest. That's how the priests lived. They lived off the offerings, right? And so that, that was the whole deal. I mean, there was like some priest, you know, one of the sacraments, you boil it and it's like, I don't want to eat boiled food anymore. And it was like a great sin before God because then they weren't participating in the sacrifice, right? Mm. So take that and put that to the mass. The priest is the one that offers the sacrifice in his ecclesial ministry. But I am still united to the sacrifice. So I'm called to unite the sacrifice. That's why you shouldn't kick out baptized people from the Mass, even if they're in the state of mortal sin. 
they have the job as priests to offer their spiritual sacrifices in union with the priest on the altar. And when we kick them out for RCIA, we're violating their baptismal their baptismal call. Like I, it's one of the biggest reforms I'm desperately trying to like rekindle in my in my RCA program, which is like, no, you know what, catechumens, the unbaptized, you go out there because you're not a priest yet, but you baptize, even though you're baptized Methodist and then never practiced, you stay in here because this is for you. You know, mm-hmm. let's dance. <laughs> we can dance if we wanna. All right, I think that's a good spot then. I think we need to end right now. You have an idol, and that is your wife. You need to please her. <laughs> you need to sacrifice. You need to go to bed. Hey, Luke, what are you listening to? Literally just say avant-garde jazz so we can end this damn thing. Avant-garde jazz. I do have a thing to say there really quick. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. It really does mean a lot. Uh, if you have not, if you can, uh, go over to iTunes and give us a review and a rating because not to feed our our ego but that really does help more people learn learn and hear about the show so that allows us to to continue doing this so uh thank you guys for all of your support we truly appreciate it uh we are on we are on facebook at facebook.com slash catching foxes podcast where are you on the twitterverse at lay evangelist I'm at the V, and you can find us at C Foxes Podcast. That's at the letter C Foxes Podcast. Dude, good chat. Sacrifice. <laughs> burm, burm, burm.